0: good again to be together. It was pretty cold out this morning. The inside of my truck windshield was frozen. Not the outside, the inside. Only in Vermont do you scrape the inside of your car windows and the outside. But we are together and I think as you've probably picked up in our worship this morning, we're, we're remembering uh, the person of Jesus Christ who is our King and what his kingdom and, and what his reign and rule looks like. And I think what what we'll discover in the text this morning is that he is a gracious king, a king who, who embraces his power and authority uh, in an unusual way uh, when we consider the other kings and kingdoms that we encounter on the earth. So if you would open up to Ephesians 4, that's the passage we'll be in again this morning. And uh, we'll we'll turn to verse 7 in just a minute. We have uh, just come through the month of December, and December is the season of gift-giving in our culture, in our country. I was doing some reading, and according to retail estimates, they they say that the average American in the month of December spends somewhere around $700 per person on the giving of Christmas gifts. Now, I don't know if that's per family member, maybe that's just, you know, adults that have an income. It'd be hard for my kids to find $700 to spend on Christmas. And then so collectively that means as a country we spend nearly $500 billion in the Christmas season on the purchasing and the giving of gifts. Now, we could probably all reflect some of the, the downsides of that experience. You know, there, there's a lot of time and stress and energy that, that all that, that creates for us. Sometimes we're given slightly misdirected or misguided gifts. But on, on the other side, if you think about the fact that we, we spend and invest that That amount of time and money into the giving of gifts. It says that we value something. And gifts are are typically things, especially at Christmas time, that are are given to those we care about. We give gifts to those we care for, and and they're an expression of our gratitude for that relationship. We give gifts most often within the context of our families, right? They're given to sort of bring and to bind us together and and to express our love for one another. And so, here in Ephesians 4, we have been told about the great gift of God's calling on us to make us a family. Last week, we considered in the first six verses of Ephesians 4... The nature of that call and that as, as Christ calls us together to be part of the one family of God. He has gifted us with his spirit to, to bind us together in unity. And he's gifted us with the ability to, to love and to serve and to show humility and patience and forbearance with one another. That's, that's part of what keeps and creates this one new family together. But as we move forward into chapter 4 today, verses 7 and following, Paul also wants to emphasize another aspect of who God is that that ensures that this family can be held together. And we're given in verses 7 through 10 today a picture of, of a God who calls his family members together so that he might give them gifts. So that he might give them an expression of his care and his love and his gratitude for each one of us. And so that through the giving of those gifts, he might also give each one of us something to contribute and and to bring into this family. To cause it to flourish, to cause it to grow. Next week, we're we're going to look more specifically at, at some of the concrete giftings that have been sort of placed within the church for that building up process. But today, in these few verses, we're we're going to consider one gift in particular, a a gift that sort of is the forerunner, it's the foundation of our life together, and that is the gift of God's grace to us. So if you'd turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, let me pray for us as we open the word of God. Lord Jesus we are here because you have called us and the word of your calling is that we would be one that we would be one with you one with each other Lord I, I pray that as we look into your word today we would be stunned and humbled and overjoyed at the image Of your graciousness extended to us in that call. We're not here because we are worthy. We're not here because we are perfect. But we're here because you have come and found us. Joined us to yourself. And you are now filling us with your grace and life. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 4, and I've backed up just a few verses. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. That's part of last week's passage that will help kind of bridge us into the verses from this week. This is what Paul says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. In verses 4 through 10 here, we, we see the Apostle Paul, again, speaking about who we are, who the family of God is, but, but he's bridging kind of two fundamental truths about our identity and our calling. In verses 1 through 6, and, and particularly in that, that last bit, verses 5 and 6, Paul emphasizes our unity in this new body, our oneness. Right? Paul will say there is only one God and Father. Right? One hope, one baptism, one faith. Last week we ended with this idea that, that in the person of Jesus Christ we are now an indivisible unity. He's, he's joined many into one. But now as we move into verse 7 and, and following in this chapter... Paul will begin to shift a little bit and he'll say that what keeps us together in that spirit of unity is the grace that God has dispensed to each one of us individually. God brings us together as one, but he cares for each of us in unique ways. When God calls us to be part of his family... ...he doesn't just mow down our diversity... ...he doesn't just call us to uniformity... ...he calls us to unity. But but he pours out his graciousness in each one of us... ...so that, that we might be uniquely who he's created us to be... ...within this family. Paul says, to each one... ...grace has been given. But before we get ahead of ourselves... I think it's worth asking what grace means. Paul says at, at a fundamental level, grace is something that holds us together. But, but what is that term meant to represent? What does it mean to have been given a portion of God's grace? A grace is a word that's loaded with theological significance... We hear it most often in the context of of Scripture, in the context of church. It's a word that Paul has already used nine times in this letter before we get to chapter 4. So so grace comes to have a a very particular application in in spiritual matters, in the relationship of, of God and his people. But it never hurts to also consider what, these words meant outside the context of Scripture, what they meant in, again, the the surrounding culture and and application and practice of everyday people. And according to the the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, this term charis in the Greek had had a variety of meanings, but maybe one of its most widespread meanings throughout the Hellenistic world, throughout the the Greek-speaking world, ...was that grace came to represent a kind of favor that was shown by those in power. A favor shown by rulers to those underneath them. And so, those in great power would sometimes be spoken of as having a gracious disposition... ...or being the givers of gracious gifts. They were demonstrations of their favor towards someone... And according to this common way of thinking... ...again grace was a kindness exercised by those with great power... ...for the benefit of those beneath them. Grace could come in the way of social favors. Grace could come in the way of financial benefit. But as the ancients understood it, grace was always one directional. It always moved from places... ...above to, to places beneath. And as a consequence... ...if, if you were one of those persons beneath... If, ...if you wanted to have a place of honor... ...or of importance... ...then you, you depended on... ...you needed to be in the good graces... ...of those above you. In many ways... ...grace could come to determine... ...your identity. It could determine your place... ...in society... And so when Paul picks up this word here in Ephesians, and and he's using it with this group of Greek-speaking Gentiles in Ephesus, what does he mean when he says that Jesus has now apportioned, Jesus has now given each one of them grace? Well, I think, as Paul often does, he He's using, he's borrowing one idea and, he, and he's going to bring it to a new place. He's going to transform our understanding of it. And just like the word meant in, in the, the day, and the time, and the culture, Paul wants them to know that they have indeed been noticed by someone with great power. They've been brought into his favor. Paul also wants them to know that this, this favor, this expression of grace will create a new and very different and unique social identity for them. They're going to be different people. They're going to be related in different ways because of this grace. But for the Apostle Paul, if we're really to understand what this grace looks like, what it feels like, what it means, then we have to encounter, not, not Caesar, not, not the aristocracy, not the affluent sort of powerful leaders of the Greek-speaking world. But we have to encounter a king named Jesus, Paul says. Paul contends that this king now rules both heaven and earth, but he does so in a dramatically different way than they have seen in other places. And so to paint for us a picture of, of the kind of gracious king that Jesus is, ...Paul's mind immediately goes to a line from one of his favorite songs... ...or in Paul's case, a psalm. And so in verse 8 here, he quotes from Psalm 68. Verse 8. Paul says, To each of you has been given grace... ...and so this is why it says... ...when Christ ascended on high... ...he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, for most of us, if we're reading through Ephesians 4, we come to this verse and it kind of throws us for a loop. We don't really know what Paul's talking about. We're not that familiar with this quotation. But for for Paul, I almost think this line is is kind of like something we hear on the radio, a song that gets stuck in our head. and, And when we hear one thing, it makes us think of another thing that's correlated or related. Paul knew and and sung the Psalms of the Old Testament with frequency. And so when when he begins to speak about a gracious God who gives gifts to his people, who shows favor and grace to each one of us, it immediately cues up Psalm 68 for him. And it's a psalm filled with these incredible images of of a God who, who is great in power... ...and is dispensing in these gifts. Let me take you there just for a second... ...back to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm of David... ...and again it it describes the, the gracious but powerful God of Israel. It describes Yahweh himself... And and it begins as a prayer for for God to to be awakened, for for God to notice, for God to come down and and to scatter the enemies that that stand before His people. And it goes on to describe how God comes down and He goes out before His people. He goes out on behalf of the widow. He goes out on behalf of the orphan in order to, to bring justice to His people. And as the psalm continues... ...the Lord is victorious, he he soundly defeats his enemies... ...and then David pictures this triumphant God of his... ...processing in victory back to Jerusalem... ...back to his throne once again. And so he goes on to say in Psalm 68 verse 18... ...when you ascended to your sanctuary on high... ...you took many captives and you received gifts from many people. As David thinks about his God, he thinks about his his power and his glory and his majesty, he pictures him coming back from this victory, and and in the the way that that kings and and battles took place in David's day, the king then collected tribute. He, He took the spoils of that battle as a gift to his own honor. This was common practice. It was something that David himself was familiar with. So Paul, thinking about the kingdom and and the kingship... ...and and the the person of who God is... ...goes to to this Psalm of David... ...but he now applies it not to just the victory of, of God... ...in an Old Testament battle. He now applies it to what's happened in the person of Jesus Christ... ...in what he has accomplished. And he says that... ...in the victory of Jesus Christ... ...sin and death have now been defeated. Those things that would threaten our well-being... ...have now been rendered powerless. And now Jesus Christ... ...has ascended... ...to sit at the right hand of God. But notice... ...that when Paul quotes this psalm... ...there's one key difference between the way it's portrayed in Psalm 68... ...and the way Paul uses it here in Ephesians. David describes God receiving gifts of tribute. But Paul says that in Jesus Christ now... ...God takes those gifts and he dispenses them to his people. He gives gifts away. In Jesus Christ, God... Has, ...has accomplished a great victory... ...but he has done so in order that he might now... ...bring the, the spoils of that victory to us... ...in order that we might thrive... ...in order that we might participate in that new life. It almost seems like Paul is describing Jesus... ...as a, a warrior Santa Claus... Right? One who goes into battle, but then comes with, with the gifts that he's acquired in order to give them to us. And I know that's probably a weird, maybe slightly unsettling analogy <laughs> to most of us. But it made me think of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll remember there's a period in that story, a, a pivotal time in, in that particular story where the curse is beginning to lift over Narnia. And Aslan is on the move, and and new things are happening. And in that moment, Father Christmas appears on the scene. And he meets with the children. And and one of the things I find striking about what Lewis says there is that that the children are surprised at who Father Christmas is or what he's like. They've heard stories that he's jolly and merry and, and happy, And that's all true, but as they stand before him, there's a great sense of awe. It says there's a a sense of solemnity before Father Christmas. That that there's a a power and a majesty about him. And a seriousness uh, with which he he takes his task. In a similar way, Paul tells us that the person of Jesus Christ... ...is both gracious and and kind and, and full of joy... But he comes bearing gifts that ought to inspire awe in us. That ought to to inspire solemnity. Because Jesus has gone and he has gone to battle on our behalf. He has defeated the powers and the principalities of evil itself. And he's done so in order that the curse that's over us might be lifted. He's done so in order that we might now participate in his victory. He's gone into battle so that he might now show us grace and favor. So Paul says to each one of us the grace of Christ has now been given. The grace that he has won. And he apportions it out to each one of us. He's he's doling out these new gifts. The gifts of good news. The gifts of his kingship. The gifts of his love for us. But before we get next week into the particulars of of how those gifts work themselves out, Paul wants to spend these last two verses, verses 9 and 10, helping us to understand how it is that Christ purchased those gifts. How it is that that victory has come to be. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Paul goes on to say, What does... He ascended, again he's quoting Psalm 68 here, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who now ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul is describing for us a rather surprising ...trajectory of glory. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2... ...Paul's made it clear that, that Jesus Christ has now ascended... To, ...to a place of great honor. He talks about Jesus Christ being seated in the heavenly realms... And, ...and interceding for us there... ...and bringing us every benefit from the realm of heaven. But what's striking about the nature of Jesus' kingship... ...is the path that he takes to get there. The path that brings him to that place of exaltation. Paul says, he is a king who goes down before he goes up. There is a descent that precedes his ascension. This winter I've been reading through the Lord of the Rings. And near the end of the first book you may remember Gandalf the wizard is is leading the fellowship of of ring bearers through the the darkness of that great mine, and he's confronted by almost the epitome of evil. It's this sort of demonic presence in this this imp named Balrog. And in in the struggle which ensues, Gandalf purchases the freedom of his friends. They, They are able to pass, but not without going to battle with this great enemy. And in doing so, Gandalf falls into this great chasm, this this abyss of great darkness. And he appears to be lost into the the depths of the earth in endless descent. But if you go on in the series, you get to book two, and at a critical moment in, in, in battle, just before a battle is to take place... A wizard appears to Strider and Gimli and Legolas, and he is stunning in his glory, stunning in his radiance, so much so that they don't recognize who this wizard is. And as they begin to interact with him, they discover that it is, in fact, Gandalf. Come again. And they they say to Gandalf, well, well, what happened? We thought you were lost into this utter darkness, into this eternal descent in the mine. And Gandalf replies and says, far below the deepest delving of the dwarves, the world is gnawed by nameless things. Now I have walked there. And he goes on to recount the struggle that ensued and how in his struggle with that enemy... He, he both descended, but then that struggle, they, they, they ascended in their struggle to the highest mountaintop on the earth, at which point Gandalf uses the last of his power to throw down his enemy. And, and he himself enters into death, only to be raised again. Only to be raised in a new and greater glory, so that he can be sent back to, to bring his friends into that victory. Tolkien, I think, takes Gandalf on that surprising trajectory of redemption because Tolkien knows it is the surprising story of our redemption, the redemption of humanity itself. Jesus, Paul says here in verse 9, has descended into the lower earthly regions. And he has done so ...in order that he might find us there. In order that he might do battle with the power of sin and death and darkness... ...and everything that would divide us from God and one another. Christ has gone into that place... ...because of his great love for us. And so Paul speaks about that descent and ascent here in chapter 4... ...but he's already covered that ground back in chapter 2 where he says that this is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the King of Heaven who has gone down into death itself. Who made us alive with Him even when we were dead and mired in transgression and sin. This, Paul says, is a definition of grace. You want to know what the favor of of your King is like? He's a king who comes down from his throne to meet you where you are powerless. But that's not all. Paul reminds us that he who has descended is the very one who has now ascended higher than all the heavens in order that that victory might fill up the whole universe. And so, in the logic of God's redemption, what goes down. ...now comes up. And in Christ's ascent... ...he brings us with him... ...into that gracious victory. Look at, at how Ephesians uh, 2... ...verses 6-8 through eight, continues that thought. Right? Christ has met us in death in order to save us... ...and God now raised us up with Christ... ...seated us with him in the heavenly realms... In order that in the coming ages he might show what? The incomparable riches of his grace. His favor. His gift to us. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved. This, Paul says, is the king That we now live under. This is the kingdom we now live in. It's the kingdom of a gracious God. Who has rescued and and restored and and bowled us over with his kindness. We live in the family of, of the gracious Christ who is also a a cosmic gift-giving warrior, who has gone to battle with evil itself in order that we might be freed from those things, that we wouldn't have to keep rehashing and rehearsing the, the patterns and the cycles of brokenness in our relationships with each other. Paul says, to each one of us, Christ now apportions his grace so that we might be his family." So that we might be joined to him. and So that his kingdom might reign in us. And might reign on the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this image of a king who has descended in order to ascend with us in your embrace. Lord, I pray today and in this week that we might be drawn just just to sit in the presence of that King and experience what your graciousness is like. I also pray you give us eyes to see the measure of grace you've placed in each one of our brothers and sisters, to remember that we are here, that we are a family because of this work that you have done. Because you have been gracious, Lord, may we be gracious with one another. And may we celebrate the life and the victory you have secured. We pray this in the name of Jesus the King. Amen.